0: Welcome to Al Bernstein Unplugged on Boxing. In a 40-year Hall of Fame career, Al has chronicled some of the greatest moments in boxing history. On this podcast, you get to hear him expand on those memories and talk about the current news in the sport of boxing you also hear Al interview some of the biggest names in the sport. Here's Al Bernstein Unplugged. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. Excited about this one
1: because we have two fine guests for you. We're going to be talking with Ben Askren, who is, of course, a former MMA star who is boxing against Jake Paul on April 17th on the Triller Fight Club card. Uh, And Ben is an interesting guy. I think you'll find the conversation very intriguing. And also, we're going to talk to Brian Dugan, who is a fine author, who has written a book called Super Fight, which chronicles the Marvin Hagler-Sugar Ray Leonard match from April 6th, 1987. So uh, we're right at an anniversary for that fight. Let me introduce you to my... Uh, co-host, as always, uh, the estimable Trip Mitchell. Hi, Trip.
0: Well, I'm hoping Estimable. Est, I don't even know how to pronounce it, but that, I'm hoping that's good, isn't it? Yes,
1: yes it's excellent. It's, uh, it's okay, great. Hey, it uh, means speaking it means you're of a great our... humanitarian and a credit to your race, which I believe is the fourth at Hialeah. <laughs> oh, That's so old. A joke has moths on it.
0: Yeah. I I, I know. And, and, uh, but you know, getting back to the eighties, speaking of old things, you were lucky enough to call a lot of the Hagler fights. You didn't call the Hagler Leonard. Was that strange? Not, do you feel uh, weird going to an event that you're not calling?
1: Well, it's interesting. That one was the one that I did my musical act. And we talked about that last week leading up to that one at the, uh, at Caesar's palace. So I was busy that weekend. Uh, But I didn't actually call that fight. And I remember it was strange because not only would I wasn't even sitting in the press section for some reason, I was in the third row in a seat. I don't know why. I can't even remember how that happened. But I was sitting there uh, watching the fight just as a spectator. Uh, And I'm not even sure. That I participated in the Sports Center coverage of that strangely, uh, because then it was just before I started participating in those. Even though I was doing all the boxing for, uh, uh, you know, for ESPN, so I was there as a spectator, and it was uh, it was a fascinating evening. I kind of got to feel the pomp and circumstance of the evening.
0: Yeah. And uh, some other show we want to talk. We'll talk a little bit more about Sports Center. what it's like to do those hits, because I think a lot of our viewers are very interested in that.
1: Yeah, that was a unique uh, that was a unique time for sure. And it is interesting to they don't maybe have a knowledge of
0: that. Sure. So let's start out. We've got a question right away in their prime. former or Tyson, if they'd fought each other, Rob Ovid with that question.
1: Yeah, that's intriguing. And you know which prime, right? Which Foreman prime, which Tyson prime? They had a couple of different parts of their career. And uh, George Foreman uh, said to me uh, on several occasions when he was mounting his second comeback, "I, I think I can beat Mike Tyson. Uh, You know, he was in his early 40s, but he felt that he had the right stuff. And he thought Tyson would be the champion when he finally got a world championship match. Well, Evander Holyfield had upset Mike Tyson, so he would fight Holyfield for the title and lost in a thrilling matchup, uh, which Holyfield won. But George Foreman acquitted himself extremely well. And it's always been my feeling that George Foreman had a certain... Style and a certain way of handling himself in the ring that would have been tough for for uh, Tyson. During Tyson's great years, I always said if you uh, just a good, really good boxer puncher is never going to beat Mike Tyson. He's just he's too much of an offensive machine. You have to either be the consummate boxer or you have to be very powerful. Well, George Foreman was very powerful, and he knew how to fight smaller fighters, and Tyson would have been shorter than him. And uh, and, it w- and of course, we all remember what Foreman did to Joe Frazier, uh, you know, and the way he was able to deal with him coming in. And I just believe that uh, at the end of the day, George Foreman might have been too much for Mike Tyson. I think stylistically, you know, he had that power, that uppercut that made you not want to get on the inside against George Foreman, if you were a shorter fighter and we saw him lift Joe Frazier three inches off the mat with that punch. I think that would have been a huge weapon against, uh, Mike Tyson. And ultimately I think, uh, I think Foreman probably would have, uh, won the fight. Some may disagree. And if you do, uh, you can tweet me at Al Bernstein and we'll, uh, we'll have a conversation about it. Uh, well, uh, I, I don't know if Ben Askren and Jake Paul uh, can reproduce what Tyson and Foreman might have done in their prime, but they will go at it on April 17th. Uh, Jake Paul, of course, the YouTuber who is now a full-time boxer, uh, taking on Ben Askren, who is a former champion in the mixed martial arts world for Bellator and the One Championships. And... It's been quite a buildup uh, leading up to the April 17th fight that they're going to have at the Mercedes-Benz Center. I'll be there as part of the announcing team. It should be an intriguing night of boxing on Triller Fight Club. And uh, we had a chance to chat with Ben Askren, and here it is. So Ben, after you retired in 2019, was there any thought in your brain that you might be back in action in any way in a, a combat sport? uh boxing no
2: definitely not Uh, when i retired i said something like um this is never going to be my career again but if something interesting comes up i would love to do it for me uh i've been competing for 20 years and i i know i know myself enough to know that i'm probably going to do something to like stay in shape kind of as a hobby type thing so i actually thought it was gonna be i'd probably do a couple wrestling matches or something right kind of go back to my roots um, there's now there's now more and more professional avenues for wrestling. So I figured, hey, I'd do a couple of wrestling matches, stay in shape, kind of be fun for me. And then this came up. And so it's like, hey, that sounds like fun. Um, I've never boxed before. Let's give that a shot. And good reason to get in shape and do all that stuff.
1: Yeah. And, of course, the, here you are fighting a, a YouTuber, of all things, in uh, Jake Paul. And you uh- – yeah, life is funny. Life takes us in many different directions, doesn't it? And um, you, to prepare for this, how did your training camp differ preparing for boxing than when you prepared for uh, mixed martial arts?
2: Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's kind of fun for me because so obviously I was a wrestler for the majority of my life um, until age 24. And, you know, wrestling's a relatively narrow skill set compared to mixed martial arts. Well, kind of everything is, right? Because in mixed martial arts, right. you could do Everything right, boxing, kickboxing, Muay yeah, exactly. Thai, you just do wrestling. And so, to come back to something that's a, a more relatively narrow skill set, it's it's kind of fun, right? Because you get to focus on just this one little thing essentially for 12 weeks and just try to get good at it. So, I've, I've had a lot of fun with it. Um, I never really tried to be a boxer in mixed martial arts. My, uh, my striking was essentially just defend a few punches and get close enough to take them down, and that was relatively effective for me. Um, and I've always been—I I don't want to say a hardcore boxing fan, but I've been a boxing fan. And so, um, you know, getting in there, and getting that, you know, getting to do it one time—I don't want to say it's an honor, but it's kind of—it's kind of cool. It's kind of fun.
1: You mentioned, uh, I saw you in another interview mentioning something I thought was fascinating, that there are certain things, of course, that you're not going to do in mixed martial arts, like with your lead leg uh, or rolling under punches. So there are certain things you would never do in, in mixed martial arts that you kind of get to do in this discipline. Will you be able to do those instinctively after one training camp?
2: Yeah, I feel, I feel like it pretty much most of it should become instinctive. I mean, it's been 12 weeks. I'm not going to do anything else, also, right? It's not going like to train for MMA right. on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and doing boxing on Tuesday. Yeah, right. right.
1: That would be counterproductive,
2: huh? Be, yeah, it would be. I mean, I tried doing that with wrestling and mixed martial arts in 2010, and it sucked. You always felt like you were leaving something out. Um, No. So I think those things become instinctive by fight time. And yeah, there's a whole bunch of things. I mean, really that first couple of weeks was just exploring like, why why am I moving this way? And pretty much all of the reasons I was moving that way were because, well, this is a productive movement for me in mixed martial arts, but it's not something that's going to be productive in boxing. So I need to eliminate it.
1: Now you have uh, had a couple boxing people help you. A former champion, Cornelius uh, Brundage, uh, the K9. Uh, he's from Detroit. But then you spent a week in uh, LA, I believe, with Freddie Roach, Hall of Fame boxing trainer, somebody I am uh, very well acquainted with. And how much did the boxing people help you uh, pick up things that were that are that you think are beneficial to you?
2: Uh, I mean, it's huge, right? Because like I said, I was never a boxer. And, you know, I, I worked with my old coaches, uh, Duke and Scott at, at Rupa Sport. Um, and Duke has done a few pro boxing matches, but obviously the majority of his fights were in Muay Thai or kickboxing. Um, so it, it was interesting getting uh, boxing people's uh, perspective. And, um, you know, I think both of them were relatively good at saying like, hey, listen, you know, you're doing one. I'm not making a career out of this, right? I'm doing, right. One, I'm doing one fight. Who, who knows? Maybe there's one more, right? But it's not like I'm not gonna do ten. This is, that's not, that's <laughs> not gonna happen. Um, and so it's like, well, we take what you already do well, or what you're, what's already as effective as possible. Realizing there's no way you can encompass all, all of the things that happen in boxing in 12 weeks. Right? right? That's impossible.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So they try to now. Did they? Here's a question, and this leads us into you discussing uh, Jake Paul, your opponent. Did they do anything that was specific from what they saw him do in just his brief couple bouts as a boxer, or it was so it was geared to that, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously, cause I'm not became, I'm not going to become a career boxer, right? So it's not right. like I need to figure um, out do everything. And I'm re- right at this point, I'm, you know, I'm only going to have one fight, and it's going to be against Jake Paul. So we need to look at the things that that he does well um and and it's i think it is kind of hard to glean too much from the two fights he's had i would say this with wrestling like if there's uh if i have one of my kids that i'm coaching and they go against another guy who's not very good like i as a coach can't gather that much out of that because the the skills are so vast right one guy's here one guy's here all the moves are going to work (laughs) yeah. <laughs> right? right any move right. they try is going to work they're going to look like an all-star so i need i need you to be against someone who's uh equitable competition or maybe better than you to figure out more about your skill set
1: yeah it's a good point now he's very you know he's um uh, uh you know obviously a uh, uh an outspoken uh flamboyant type and uh but he made an interesting comment that he said none of what I say is going to get in Ben Askren's head because he, you know, he comes back and me and all the rest. He said, but nonetheless, I think I'm going to win because his boxing skills are at the level of a fourth grader. Um, <laughs> what what's your response to that?
2: Yeah, so I you know I I would say probably on fight night my boxing skills would be better than a fourth grader. Um, and listen, I would probably guess, especially if you just like looked at us hitting mitts or whatever on fight night, you'd say, oh, that guy's that guy better than that guy, right? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. one thing I know from wrestling and from combat sports is, it ain't just about how good you look doing it. And there's been many times when you can look at two people and you say, wow, how's that guy gonna compete with that guy? And when you get in the cage or get in the ring or get on the mat with another man, um, if one guy can make it a tough enough fight, and the other guy's not used to dealing with adversity, that can change everything. That, I mean, Mike Tyson famously said it about a punch, uh, what he said, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And I, w- I would al- I would elaborate on that and say, everyone has a plan until they get tired. Everyone looks good until they get tired. And some people just so happen to get tired really, really quickly, right? And so mm-hmm. like, you know, I know with wrestlers, the, in wrestling only a seven minute match. You can have one guy at the beginning of seven minutes, and you can see a totally different guy at the end of the seven minutes. And that, it's only seven minutes, right? Um, so I, th- I think there's uh, a lot to do with the competitive aspect of this. I've been competing my whole life um, in combat sports, wrestling, jiu-jitsu, and mixed martial arts. And I understand how to compete.
1: You know, he he said that uh, he actually talked to George uh, Masvidal and one of the only one of only two men to defeat you. And one of the pieces of advice he got from him was that you are going to try to hold him and and weigh on him and make him tired, uh, which it sounds like you probably will do in those early rounds. I mean, isn't that, isn't that obvious though? I <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess that really isn't a, the greatest insight on the planet. It's it? not the greatest insight. Yeah, I
2: mean, it's like I'm not going to stand at range and try to eat yeah, his best uh, punches. That's I'm, I'm not going to be flashy. That's not who I am or how my body's built. Yeah, yeah. It's um, not like
1: if you got on the inside, people would say, "Who knew?" Right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I, so I think I think every athlete is has to try to play to their own strengths. Yeah. Right. And that's that's kind of what I've done my whole life, whether it was wrestling or mixed martial arts. And that's
1: what I'm going to try to do in boxing. Uh, you had a hip replacement. Um, and uh, it seems like from what I've heard you say, that rather than that being something that is detrimental in preparing, a site, like it's helped you that you've felt so much better from it. Is that the case? So much better. I couldn't recommend it enough. If I would have known the result of what yeah. it was going to be,
2: I would have done it significantly earlier. Um you know, I was dealing with various levels of that. Pro- I mean, probably the earliest I can remember is 2009, 10. I, w- I was having you know, some, some minor issues with it. Um, and then, you know, I built up as my career went along. And so definitely the first time I retired from mixed martial arts was 27, November of 2017. Um, and I was having significant issues. I remember because um, I was going to Asia a decent amount, I was fighting in one championship. And um, one of the coaches spoke English and he could speak Thai to the Thai trainers. And they would always have me try to kick with my left leg. And I would tell them like, I can't kick, but they, they weren't getting what I was saying, you know, so I'd always have to go tell, (laughs) I just remind them, right. Hey, tell this guy I can't kick with my left leg. And so in 2017, had I known how good the surgery was going to be, I would, I would have just done it right then and there. Um, It was awesome. Not even just from from an athletic standpoint, but just from my everyday life standpoint. uh, It's great.
1: That's intriguing. Well, that's been uh, helpful to you. Um, you are one of the people. I, my my uh, uh, philosophy has always been, even though obviously, although I've, I've done a couple of uh, mixed martial arts mat- matches here and there, doing play-by-play. Obviously, boxing has uh, dominated my career. I believe that mixed martial arts and boxing. There's plenty of room in the big combat sports tent for both sports, and you are are you've espoused that. Um, and so it's not so weird that here you are engaging in some boxing at some point.
2: Yeah. I mean, listen, I think there's enough room for all, all of it. And I think all of, I, I really think kind of the infighting between combat sports is kind of, it's kind of funny to me because we have a lot more in common than we do different, right? Right. right? right. This is whether it's kickboxing, Muay Thai, MMA, boxing, wrestling, submission, grappling, jujitsu, like there's a lot that's the same and there's a little bit that's different, you know? And so, um, I don't see why people fight so much. I, you know, I kind of, everything I mentioned there, I'm a fan of some things. I'm a fan more than other things, but there's none of those things that I say, that's stupid. I don't want to watch that. None of them.
1: Yeah. Interesting point. Yeah. That is intriguing. Now you and your brother own wrestling academies and that's your main focus of and, um, and that's how you make your living. And it's a passion for you, obviously. Uh, but if you beat uh, Jake Paul convincingly, and some other YouTuber comes after you, could you see yourself boxing again? Yeah, I saw. <laughs> Everyone keeps asking me this. And I'm like, I know, listen, yeah. I
2: signed up one time to fight Jake Paul, because I thought it was going to be fun. Yeah, and yeah now people are already looking at, hey, that's
1: the nature of boxing. isn't Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah. So I think, you know, I, I think probably the most likely thing that would have me fight again, um, would be like, if there's a controversial decision, right. You go the distance and you know, I win and and he says, this is bull crap. I got screwed. Or, you know, he wins or it's a draw. That would probably be like the most likely scenario where I think I would do it again. Um, because I'm not really in this YouTube world. I guess like maybe his brother, right? That would be possibly somebody, but like, I don't know other YouTubers at Fox like that. Yeah, I, right. <laughs> I mean, when I, when I, when Jake Paul called me out, I'm like, okay, like I know his name, but I don't know anything about him whatsoever. That's not my generation.
1: Yeah. What, how did you, how did you ultimately uh, find out more about him as a, did you just uh, Google him? Well, my, most of
2: my teenagers, yeah, uh, right? Crazy. So I coach, I coach from five age five to age 18 at my wrestling academies.
1: And those, those are the ones who told me everything. <laughs> That's why most of us get information, right. From those, from those folks. Uh, what exactly do you expect to happen in that fight against Jake Paul on April 17th from your standpoint?
2: Yeah, I think, I think he's going to come out um, hot. And I think, you know, I think he does have some decent boxing skills. Uh, I, I don't think there's no denying that. Um, and I think he's going to re- think, oh, I'm going to get this guy out of here really quick. His boxing skills are a fourth grader, as he said. And he's going to realize, okay, he's a little harder hit than I thought. Uh, he's a little tougher than I thought. Oh, shit, I'm getting hit back. And then, you know, after a few rounds of that, he's going to start really questioning, do I have the grit to do this? Do I have the toughness? To do this? Oh, my gosh, I feel tired and you know i i say like all combat sports are the same because anyone who's achieved a really high level of success in any of those fields they've been at that point in a fight where they have to say okay let's freaking get this done right i'm tired so what i'm hurt i don't care and jake paul hasn't been there he's been in two fights he was he was a relatively unsuccessful wrestler um not very good at all so he did never. He never got there in wrestling, and he's had two fights, both of which were guys who had very low skill levels. So he's not got there in fighting either. So w- when he gets there, he's not gonna know what to do. He's gonna panic. And you know, uh, a great example of a really great fighter who had this happen one time, and the next time he got there, he actually responded a little bit differently. Was Conor McGregor. Conor yeah. McGregor in his first Nade Diaz fight got to that point at about seven minutes, and he got tired, and he didn't know what to do, and he yeah. gave up. Nate Diaz put him down and choked him out. And if you watch their second fight, their second fight went all 25 minutes. And there's a point in the second and third rounds when Connor's like getting tired. And he thinks, you, th- you see him thinking his head, fuck this, I'm going to get this done, right? Because he's been there before and he knows how to deal with it. And every combat athlete, regardless of which one it is, you have to cross that threshold at some point. And most of them don't do that on their first try, right? They fold. And that's what I think is going to happen on April 17th.
1: Very interesting. And the last question is, you are part of a very unique event. I mean, this event is, is very unique. You know, it, 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 it combines generational things. It combines music and, and uh, boxing. I'm guessing that all of that has made this even a little more fun for you to be involved in. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting. Right. I, I said You know, it doesn't impact you in the ring. It would take something
2: really unique for me to come out of retirement. Something that I thought was intriguing, and man, this this checks all the boxes. I, I think it's gonna be a blast. Um, I think it's gonna be a, a really really fun event. Not only the boxing, but the, the music also. And uh, yeah, we'll <laughs> look back at twenty years and be like, that was wild. Like <laughs> either you know, it's me one of two things. Be either like, oh yeah, I was at the start of that genre of things, right? And it takes off and it becomes a thing where they have these. Combat sports and music together, or it's gonna be like, oh, remember that thing that we did? We tried to do that one time, and then it happened like twice, and then it failed. It's gonna be one of those two things, uh, both of which will be cool to look back on in twenty years. All
1: right. Well, uh, very anxious to see uh, your boxing debut. I'm a big fan of your mixed martial arts performances, and uh, uh, and uh, I think a lot of people are are very anxious to see you in the ring, boxing. So good Absolutely. luck on April seventeenth. Right. Thanks
2: a lot. I appreciate it.
1: Take care. So that was my chat with uh, Ben Askren. Uh, to find out everything about that Triller Fight Club card, you can go to TrillerFightClub.com. You can find out how to order it. You can see videos uh, leading up to uh, uh, to the fight, uh, features on the different fighters. You can go revisit the uh, initial press conference in which they, uh, they were all uh, interacting with each other. I hosted that, and you can go take a look at that if you'd like and get yourself ready for that April 17th card.
0: Now, Trip, I believe we have another question that we need to answer. We do. Nellie sent this question in. Do you th- think Carl Frampton merits a Hall of Fame induct- induction?
1: You know, uh, Carl Frampton, of course, who recently retired, just retired after his loss to Jamel Herring. I did both of Carl Frampton's fights against uh, Leo Santa Cruz. He won the first one, lost the second. And uh, I also did uh, one of his championship fights uh, that he had um, over in uh, Ireland. And it was a wonderful, terrific uh, event and uh, very exciting. Uh, You know, I I love Carl Frampton. I I think he's a great guy. I think he's a superb fighter. But I wouldn't vote for him to be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I think his career has been a good one, but it doesn't have enough... Um, victories against top name fighters, uh, in my opinion, to merit the Hall of Fame. He won the title twice. He defended it, I believe, three or four times the first time. But I just don't think there are Hall of Fame credentials. And I am of the belief that the standards for the Hall of Fame have been lowered in the last seven or eight or nine years. And um, I'm not going to get into specifics about who should or shouldn't be in, but I just think uh, people have gotten into the Hall of Fame that uh, I I think it's become more of a popularity contest, Um, and I don't think the people selecting are looking at the criteria as carefully as they might. So I love Carl Frampton. Please don't uh, be mad at me Uh, uh, if you are his fan. uh, I'm in no way denigrating his career. I think he's terrific. I just don't think Hall of Fame is uh, where he, uh, induction is uh, something that's totally appropriate. Well, uh, two men that are in Boxing Hall of Fame that put on uh, a major event uh, back in 1987 on April 6th. uh, The Super Fight, as it's called, by Brian Dugan, who has a book of that name out now, were Marvin Hagler and Sugar Ray Leonard. Uh, And Brian's book is an excellent read. And uh, I wanted to have him on to discuss it and kind of revisit those great memories from Hagler Leonard. So here's our chat with author Brian Dugan. So, Brian, as you wrote this book about uh, Hagler Leonard and their uh, epic encounter, you, of course, set the stage for it. And you went back to set the stage with each man uh, and there were a number of, uh, key topics in, that you, you did to set the table in a very, uh, excellent manner. And one of them was, uh, recounting, uh, some of the ways in which they got to the, the super fight. And one was the, uh, Marvin Hagler, Tommy Hearns fight, which I am intimately familiar with since I called that fight, uh, and was there for it. And you, you spent a, a good portion, uh, of the time on that, talking about that amazing press tour that uh, created such animosity between the fighters.
3: Yes, I mean, um, I think that uh, Marvin and the creation of, of animosity probably uh, fit at hand and glove, whatever the circumstance are. And uh, um, I think though that, uh, as you say, that, that Hagler-Hearns fight with, with, with which you are very familiar, of course, uh, I mean, that was one of the wars of the ages. And it's, uh, it's very interesting in terms of how Marvin was able to tap into that internal rage and absolutely bring it out where it consumed the ring on Tommy uh, in the end. And of course, Ray was there at ringside, like yourself, commentating on the fight. And uh, there's two memorable uh, things, I think, from, from, from that fight for me in particular. The way in which Marvin Hagler ran across the ring to deliver those final two blows—it will be forever uh, seared into my mind—and also Ray Leonard's um, uh, uh, statement at the end of the at the end of the fight, uh, where he said, uh, "That's the reason I'm I'm retired," <laughs> and uh, you, really, you couldn't blame him at that point. To be fair, uh, no, I think the you, one one
1: you had something interesting in the book that Ray Leonard said uh, that he thought the the man that veered away from his game plan uh, the quickest was likely the one that would lose. And he said that was going to be Tommy Hearns.
3: Absolutely. Uh, And that was, uh, you know, as you would uh, recognize with Ray, that was uh, very intuitive on his part and, uh, and showed his, uh, his, intellect and his ring intelligence and how he could weigh up a fight really well. And he knew that if Marvin Hagler remained the immovable object, then uh, Tommy Hearns would be the man who would blink, if you like, in the the gunfight as it was. I think at the end of it, uh, it it was so stunning. Uh, I think people at ringside were just awed and shocked by what they had seen. One observer, uh, one stunned observer, uh, turned to, to the man beside him at, uh, at ringside uh, and said who should he fight next and the, the reaction was well how about Russia uh, <laughs> and, and that was and that was just how uh, how uh, incredible Marvin Hagler had been in that fight.
1: Yeah it was an amazing performance and uh, uh, created uh, what could have been the best the first round or best round in middleweight boxing history. Now, in the book, you talk a lot about the different relationships of these men and, and who they, uh, uh, their camps. And for Ray Leonard, you detail his relationship with Mike Trainer, who, of course, is, to boxing fans, is a well-known figure. To ca- The casual fan, they may not know him. He was a lawyer uh, who uh, represented uh, Ray Leonard. And they had a long relationship and it was an important one, wasn't it?
3: I think it could be said that it might have been the most important and vital relationship in Ray Leonard's life. Certainly his business life, that's for sure. Uh, Mike Traynor transformed what Ray Leonard might have been. Uh, He made Ray Leonard front and center long before Money Mayweather uh, came along on the scene. There was Money Leonard. Uh, Ray was the first $100 million Fighter, uh, the super fight would be the first one hundred million dollar fight, and largely that was down, as you quite rightly point out, to one man, and that single man that was uh, was behind Ray Leonard all the way was Mike Trainer. He and interestingly, he was a guy who came from outside of boxing, and uh, and he brought a, a fresh perspective. He made the fighter the main man, as opposed to as we all know, it's 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 run by the promoters, it's run by managers and um, it's run with uh, a lot of chicanery where the likes of Don King would be involved. Um, but, you know, Mike- Don Dread, King, I mean, chicanery,
1: what, shocking.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Well, one, one of the great stories, uh, which I love, is when, I know that you read this, uh, when Don and uh, Bob Arum uh, are trying to make the fight between uh, Ray and Roberto and uh, Don comes along and of course, they don't talk to one another. They're talking through Mike Trainer, and eventually, Mike Trainer just gets up and says, "If you guys don't talk, you know, I'm going down to Panama on my own, I'll make the fight myself." And uh, right. and that was the kind of guy that he was. He made things happen, but he made things happen for his client, to his client's preferences, and uh, not to the promoter's preferences all the way.
1: Yeah, that was interesting to be sure. And you spent a lot of the book talking about uh, the long time, another long time relationship business one. And that is the one between Marvin Hagler and uh, Goody and Pat Petronelli. And, you know, I lived that period with Marvin Hagler and the Petronellis, and I was a firsthand witness to the strength of their relationship, the affection they had for each other. And that relationship was uh, as strong a one as you could ever imagine in boxing or anything else.
3: They, they called it the triangle. Uh, Al. And they called it that for a reason. It was, it was unbreakable in that sense. And loyalty was, was a big thing for Marvin. Um, he stayed with the Petronellis throughout his career when men like Don King were trying to muscle their way in, when other promoters would have done the same. And um, I think it went all the way back to when uh, Marvin used to fashion himself as the, the best construction worker in uh, Massachusetts. Oh, oh. Uh, when he was working for the Petronellis right. and their construction company. And they they did things for Marvin uh, that they didn't have to do at that point. There were small things, such as buying him lunch and making sure that he didn't pay it at the end of the week out of his meagre wages. Uh, but that meant a lot to Hagler when it came to the big bucks, um, when he would fight for world titles and everything. And he just felt, I think... Uh, that they were men he could trust. And he came from a background, Al, as you will know, you knew uh, Marvin much better than I. Uh, Marvin had a lot of reason to mistrust a lot of people. Uh, And he felt in Goody and Pat, they were people he could uh, trust to the grave.
1: And tell a story uh, that you detailed in the book about how when the Hagler-Leonard fight was uh, getting close to being made, and and uh, I think it was either it was Pat I think that was trying to talk uh, Hagler into it. He and Bob Arum went there. Uh, explain what happened when how they interacted just before that fight was being made, and uh, it it kind of reveals the strength of their relationship.
3: It really does because uh, they they couldn't get hold of Marvin. Uh, Marvin was in his mountain hideaway and. Uh, they really couldn't pin him down as to uh, agreeing ultimately the terms on the fight, and so they drove up into the into the mountains. Um, Pat and Bob Arum, and uh, Pat said to Bob, "Listen, I'll go in. I'll speak to him. You stay here. It won't take long, and I'll be straight out." So they actually sat outside uh, Pat and Marvin, and and Bob Arum was was able to watch proceedings, and at a certain point. Uh, Bob was able to see Marvin get up out of his chair and start thumping the table really hard. And he was clearly quite angry. And not long after, uh, Pat got up, uh, walked away, came over to the car. And of course, Bob was thinking, well, the fight must be blown or what happened? And uh, so he he asks him and Pat uh, says, you know what, I said to Marvin that, if you want myself and Goody to give up our 33%, we'll do it for 10%, Marvin, for you to take this fight and make it happen because we believe in you all the way. And that's when Marvin got up and said, Pat, you're not taking a penny less than your 33% or I'm not going to go through with the fight. And that and that shows you that the loyalty was, was, was two ways. The Petronellis were, were all the way with Marvin, but Marvin was all the way with them, even to the point of, Uh, the fight was going to be off if they didn't take their 33%. (laughs) Remarkable
1: story. You detail in the book also, and we're going to get to the fight. Well, you detail in the book uh, that Hagler and Leonard circled each other a lot uh, in their careers way before this fight was actually made, before the super fight was finally made. And they there were a lot of potential times when it looked like it might be made was wasn't there?
3: Yes. I mean, you know, you, 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 will remember it better than I, but it, when, when I went back to research, it was incredible for, for, for six years, really, they were intertwined like that. They were connected. Um, and the fight was being talked about in a, in a very real way. We all know how boxing works. Uh, it percolates for a long time. Sometimes it fizzles out altogether. Finally, the big fights, uh, Get made, but there were reasons, of course, why there was that long interlude. Um, for a start, I think we shouldn't underestimate the fact that uh, there is a quite significant gap between welterweight and middleweight. Um, right, you know, you're talking 147 pounds to 160 pounds, and you're not talking about a 160 pound guy who was, you know, a, a softish kind of boxer type. He was an absolute uh, enforcer at middleweight and I think that, that was a, a gap that Ray recognized was, was a bit too significant at certain points uh, in, his own, uh, in his own career when he was still at welterweight and of course he had the uh, detached retina injury and the operation and that meant that actually he retired although he, he did that in a way which further fueled Marvin's resentment because Ray, in his grandiose way, and his quite man- manipulative, perhaps Machiavellian ways, yeah, right. uh, decided to invite uh, Marvin to uh, Baltimore, to the Civic Center, to this grand occasion where Howard Cosell was presenting. And in fact, it went out live on, on ABC, I believe, at the time. Yes. And, uh, and of course, Marvin was at ringside, specially invited by Ray. And he, he thought that he was there to accept uh, Ray Leonard's challenge that Ray was finally going to challenge for the world middleweight title. And of course, Ray retired and Marvin bore that grudge like he bore all the others, but that was an added resentment. He he felt like a stooge in Ray Leonard's play. And that was not something that you visited on Marvin Hagler uh, easily and got away with it. So of course, when the time comes, when, when, when Ray comes out of retirement the first time to fight Kevin Howard, very unimpressive. Uh, For the first time in his career, he got knocked down. Marvin was at ringside. And of course he enjoyed the fact that Ray got knocked down and didn't look good, but he also recognized that that meant that their super fight wasn't going to happen. And of course it didn't. Ray re-retired, but of course it it just burnt away at Ray Leonard, Uh, that itch, that feeling which he genuinely felt that he could beat Marvin Hagler even when Marvin was at the top of the tree when he was getting all the plaudits for destroying Tommy Hearns, for destroying uh, John the Beast Mugabe. Ray felt he could actually tame the monster. And of course, when Ray decides to throw down the gauntlet and say he's coming out of retirement to have one fight, he'll face Marvin Hagler. Uh, Marvin then actually starts playing games himself and says, well, maybe I'm retired, you know, <laughs> uh, on the Johnny Carson show famously. He, uh, he elongated his, uh, um, his kind of, uh, he was drawing out his decision. And uh, of course, he, he would go through with it because he felt that he had taken on all challenges and he wasn't going to give up on the last man standing. Ray Leonard, most of all.
1: Yeah, and when they did sit down and negotiate this fight, this has always been one of the most fascinating things to me, and you detail it in your book. It was intriguing because both men won in a way from the negotiations. Hagler won the financial part, and Leonard won the the competition part. Explain that.
3: Very much so, and that's why throughout the book, uh, I detailed, for the most part, uh, the purses. Each right, man right. Would, would get, because it was very significant. Because that was one of the biggest resentments uh, that Marvin had. That, uh, you know, when he uh, turned professional, uh, he, his first fight, he, he made 40 bucks. Ray Leonard made $50,000. Yeah, it's a
1: little different, uh, yeah. um,
3: and, uh, and even when they both challenged for the world title for the first time, when, uh, when Ray fought Wilfred Benitez and beat him for the welterweight title, and uh, Marvin challenged Antiofermo for the world middleweight title. And uh, actually, it was a, a, a larcenous draw. Yeah. Um, you know, again, there was a major discrepancy in the, in the purses. Marvin got paid $40,000, Ray $1 million. And this is, where, this is where Ray Leonard, whatever you say about Ray Leonard, I think he's the smartest fighter who's ever probably set foot in a boxing. He yeah. um, Because he knew this time he was willing to give up on the money, because he was willing to give Marvin the, the lion's share of the purse for the bigger things that would be more crucial in terms of who might win the fight, such as the gloves, such as the size of the ring, but most crucially, the number of rounds. That was the biggest thing that he wanted to be in his favour, and it was the biggest factor uh, Mike Trainer said in terms of the negotiations. It was, it was the most challenging aspect of doing the deal and of course pat petronelli would rue the fact that they allowed it so easily to settle for 12 rounds because had Hagler put down his foot and said 15 rounds ray leonard was in no position as the challenger to dictate the number of rounds uh, the fight would be but uh, marvin gave that up and it was a very significant happening
1: yeah and they fought with uh, 10 ounce gloves instead of eight ounce gloves and the ring size was allowed to be, as you said, the biggest that you could get it, twenty feet by twenty feet. Uh, and and part and a lot of that was fueled by the fact that Hagler felt that he, there's no way he could possibly lose this fight.
3: There was almost an arrogance uh, about it all. Um, you know, it's interesting uh, when you go back over it, and 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 I I remember, as do you, in terms of the build-up, everyone thought that Ray Leonard was yeah was out of his mind. What well, you you're taking on the monster you're taking on a guy who is an ogre who goes in and destroys fighters' careers. Uh, I think Marvin had said at the time when Ray had come back to fight Kevin Howard, that if Ray is stupid enough to get into the ring with me, then I'm stupid enough to rip his eye out. You know, <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was just that uh, yeah. base about it, you know? And, uh, and that was, you know, people feared not only for Ray's eyesight going into the fight, uh, they feared actually for his life going into that fight. You know, there was a feeling that uh, uh, he was coming back. It was almost like, uh, it was almost like, shall we say, Bjorn Borg coming back uh, with his little wooden racket uh, to face uh, Rafa Nadal. Um, you know, in terms of, uh, you, you, just, you just were sending a guy in there who, yes, was once great, but couldn't be great in this uh, particular circumstance. And yeah. that's, what the, that's what the general feeling was.
1: And um, one of the most interesting things that happened before this fight was that the the Hagler camp turned down, as you detail in the book, turned down uh, Harry Gibbs, the, uh, uh, the, the British judge, right? Uh, partially because they were so angry with all things British because of what had happened when he lo- beat Alan Minter for the title and uh, a number of, frankly, racist uh, uh, fans had showered the ring and, and it took away an important moment from him. Uh, and, and so they were very suspicious of all things that were British. So they vetoed him, but
3: the judge that they ended up with didn't serve them very well, did he? One of the great ironies, um, and again, uh, cause for regret uh, uh, with the patronet, with the Petronellis, and with Marvin ultimately. Um, but yes, but that's but that's actually one of the things that I, I went back and investigated, and uh, and actually, it's one of the great myths. It it it's it's not actually that he was British, and you you're, you're right, absolutely. Uh, what Marvin had experienced in terms of the, uh, the the terrible racism to which he was subjected when he won the world middleweight title from Alan Minter. And he never forgot that um, because he it, it denied him his great moment, his great crowning glory. Right. Uh, he didn't receive the belt in the ring. But it wasn't that Harry Gibbs was English and British and it was going back to that particular moment. Uh, because don't forget, uh, Harry Gibbs actually had been a judge, although a pretty redundant right. judge, for the hagler Herons fight. Um, right. But uh, it was actually that they felt that the British judge might favor the boxer over mm-hmm. over the fighter, if you like. Oh, okay. And so that's why they brought in uh, Jojo Aguera. Uh And then, of course, the myth is that Harry Gibbs scored the fight for Marvin Hagler. Yeah, you
1: explain that in the book. It's very yeah, good. The, uh, tell us about that.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, everyone, uh, the story is, depending on who's telling it, that Harry Gibbs scored the fight by seven rounds to five or eight rounds to four uh, in favor of uh, Marvin Hagler, which uh, which compounds this, the, the irony, if you like. But actually, Harry Gibbs uh, said at the time uh, that uh, he didn't score the fights off the TV. He's a professional boxing judge. He feels he should be at the ringside if he's ever going to have to put his name on and reputation on the line in terms of how he would score a fight. So he didn't score the fight.
1: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. The fight itself will, uh, will remain forever a subject of debate, uh, the fight between... Uh, Marvin Hagler and Ray Leonard that you detail so well in your book, Super Fight. And it it is one that everybody has an opinion on. It's divided in the boxing world. And part of it is because there were so many dramas played out within that fight. The first one was that Marvin Hagler decided to fight the first three rounds as a right hander and box in this fight. And you talk about it in the book. It was an interesting decision on his part.
3: It was a very interesting decision and the wrong decision. Um, Gil Clancy, who was calling the fight, immediately called that out and said he couldn't understand why on earth Marvin Hagler was uh, was turning righty because he was more effective as a southpaw. Yeah. And, of course, when the, the longer the fight went on, of course, that was borne out as well. Um, I think this is where it comes back to Ray's intelligence. Um, Ray had done the ultimate psych job. I mean, he had psyched Marvin... Going back to their dinner in Bethesda, Maryland, um, where he got Marvin to acknowledge that, uh, you know, he felt like he was ready to retire, that he was getting injured more easily, he was getting cut more easily. um, And he actually was was pretty much finished with boxing. And this was ahead of him going into the fight with Mugabe. And during the press tour, and you you mentioned the Hagler-Earons press tour, during the the Leonard Hagler press tour, Ray, Ray got to Marvin. To the extent that halfway through the tour, Marvin bowed out because Ray was just complimenting him all the way. Mm -hmm. And he even sowed the seeds of you guys, as you guys in the media, you don't give Marvin Hagler enough credit as a boxer. You're all saying that he's this destroyer, which he is, but he's a magnificent boxer as well. And you guys don't give him enough credit. And he sowed the seed in Marvin, where Marvin was in two minds, actually. Do you know what? maybe it would be a better thing for me to try to outbox ray leonard maybe i'd get more uh, kudos out of that and and it and it and it left him it left him conflicted and of course we made the wrong choice
1: and then as the fight wore on uh hagler turned lefty and started to be more effective in the fight and uh in the middle rounds and some of the later rounds uh did very well and a seminal moment in that fight came in round nine, didn't it? When Marvin Hagler appeared. There were several times in the fight where he stunned Leonard, but that was the round in which it appeared Marvin Hagler might uh literally end things.
3: It looked like he had finally walked him down, as they say in then fight parlance. You know, he had uh he had landed some meaty blows, as you say earlier in the fight. I think the fifth round was the the round in which uh, Ray acknowledged that he had been hit the hardest by a right uppercut, and that really did hurt him, but he disguised it very well in that round. But in the ninth round, you're absolutely right. There was no disguising. Ray Leonard looked in serious trouble uh, to the point where ringside observers thought, this is now the end. Uh, Marvin had caught up with him. He had had backed him into uh, Ray's own corner. He was um, firing in a fusillade of blows. And, of course, Marvin... Uh, when he was at his most fierce, uh, and he got a man like that uh, on the ropes, Marvin was relentless and uh, and ruthless in finishing fighters off. But there was something in Ray Leonard, um, you know, in terms of Sugar Ray, you get the feeling, you know, that you know he, the the sweetness and all of this and the lightness. The sweetness never went all the way down with Ray. Is the truth. When he was in the ring, he was a mean man. And in that moment, he summoned up all of the, the energies in him and was able to uh, fight his way out of the corner. Um, and it was magnificent. He did it three times with, uh, with magnificent salvos of blows. But of course, as you say, that's, that's one of the, the, the great controversies in terms of uh, people debated to this day in terms of who won, as you say, because the meteor blows in the fight were landed by Marvin. And people will say that Ray was just shoe shining. Um, but I think that uh, if you were just shoe shining against Marvin Hagler, I don't think that Marvin Hagler would allow you to go 12 rounds. I think Ray was also hitting him back uh, with some pretty serious blows himself. But that, that ninth round was was an incredible round and uh, not quite on Hagler-Hearn's level. But, you know, uh, yeah. probably the Second World War wasn't on uh, Hagler-Hearn's level. <laughs> exactly. um, but, yeah. uh, but it was a great round.
1: And the fight goes to full 12, not 15, as Marvin probably would have liked. Uh, but the decision, you know, uh, famous now, for, uh, a split decision with uh, two judges having it 115, 113, one for Hagler, one for Leonard. And then Jojo Guerra, that we previously mentioned, uh, the, the, the judge from Mexico, uh, has it 118, 111 for Ray Leonard. And that was the ultimate insult. Uh, and created, uh, to, you know, to this day, uh, you know, disdain among fans and also uh, great uh, consternation among Marvin Hagler when he was alive and the Petronelli's as well.
3: Very much so. Um, in fact, Pat um, said that uh, that the bitterness uh, Marvin would take to his grave, that it was more bitter to Marvin than death itself. Um and uh it was an outrageous decision anyone who would try and and you know i've heard you know decent judges or people we we would consider decent judges attempt to to try to uh um suggest that well you can see how he scored it on you cannot see how he scored that fight no. mar-,
1: mar marvin hagler was the victim of uh, some really awful scorecards in his career the Vito Antifermo fight in which he challenged for the title one of the worst scored fights in history and then that specific card certainly you could make a case for Ray Raylander winning the fight but 118 to 111 was absurd
3: it was absurd totally absurd and uh and I think it, it, the bitterness from that decision was what persuaded Marvin to walk away in the end you know he uh, he he really felt that uh he had been a champion of you know, quite rare commitment. Uh, he had been a champion of very rare honor. Um, he, was, he was the ultimate fighter's fighter. He was the ultimate you know, blue collar champion, if you like. Um, he appealed to every man. Um, and he just felt that this was just one more occasion and it'll be one last occasion when boxing did the dirty on him. Uh, needlessly, uh, uh, you know, as you say, if if someone uh, was to give the decision to Ray marginally, uh, and right. he lost that way, well, that's okay. You can you can accept that. But to give it uh, by you know eight points, uh, uh, ten rounds to two, it wasn't a ten round to two fight uh, uh, for Ray Leonard, and even even Ray would acknowledge that.
1: Yeah, that's for sure. So both men lived on past that. Uh, sadly, we just lost Marvin Hagler. Uh, devastating to all of us that knew him and all the fans that that loved him. Uh, they had to carry on after that fight. Uh, Marvin did it by going, as you detail in the book, to Italy with his new wife, Kay. And ironically, you talk in the book about their marital issues during the course of their, uh, their life, uh, and, and how they spilled over into the public. And ironically, both men got divorced from their previous wives the same year in 1990, when Marvin divorced Bertha and, uh, Ray divorced Juanita and Marvin Hagler, uh, was able to find a certain peace in italy wasn't he with his life and with the way he went about living the rest of it
3: well it's it's um, an incredible thing to think that uh, that the man who sprang from the deepest of ghettos in central ward new york finally found a home and as you said peace in in milan italy he of yeah, all places gave, yes i mean he, he lived quite a a cultured, yeah. sophisticated life uh, in the end. And he, and he loved it. He really enjoyed it. He, uh, he loved uh, the Italian people. He loved that way of life. And, and he was incredibly close to Kay, which of course makes it so sad in terms of what has just happened. And the suddenness of that, I think increased the sense of shock that we all felt. But he did, he, he did um, find that peace in Italy. He, he tried to find a second career in acting. I think Marvin himself would have been the first to acknowledge that he was never going to be an Oscar winner, but you know what? He tried, and I think and he enjoyed it. He, he loved it. He loved it, and he loved it. He, he actually had that acting bug in him before he had left the boxing game, and uh, and he wanted to pursue it, and he pursued it in a very real way, as you would expect of of, of Marvin Hagler. But you know, he he found he, found, um, he certainly found peace. Uh, Italy, I think he found peace as well, Al, because he was able to turn his back on boxing. Um, He he didn't fall into this trap of trying to come back, which, of course, Ray did in the end. Ray came back several times after that fight um, and got beaten up badly in the end by Hector Camacho. He got beaten up by Terry Norris previous to that as well. Uh, Marvin, that never happened to him. And, of course, he treated with disdain Ray's efforts. To actually um, recruit Marvin into that seniors tour of uh, of Tommy and Roberto, and, uh, and, and there's you know there's something really classy about Marvin Hagler in the end that uh, that he turned his back on that, and uh, you know even now in terms of uh, his final decision that uh, there would be no funeral, um, he didn't like funerals. It was it was painful to him when he had to bury Pat and Goody. Very painful. He didn't want to be in the church. But of course he was in the church, and uh, do you know there's one thing about Marvin Hagler, and you were there this night, and I think it uh, speaks everything about Marvin um, because he was this destroyer in the ring. There's absolutely no question about that. There was no mercy in him when he went to war. Uh, he went to war to finish you, uh, to put you down, and and obliterate you. Um, but he had a relationship with his mother. Mother. Um, Ida May, which was was so tight. um, I remember, uh, I recall after the the fight in London against Alan Minter, um, she reflected on where they had come from in terms of uh, Central Ward. And she said that they don't talk a lot about it because some memories are too painful. But you were there in Las Vegas on the night that Marvin was inducted into the Nevada Hall of Fame. And the way he interrupted his speech, in one of his you know, most glorious moments because he had been denied the glory when he challenged for the title against Alan. And he felt like he was getting the, the, the acclaim that had been denied him for so long. And he interrupted it. And he turned to his mother in the audience and he said, could you stand up? Could you please stand up, Ma? And he called her Ma. And I think there's something so endearing and so very different to what that ogres images of that monster in the ring you know he was also his mother's son and there was a great um attachment there and uh, and that's what marvin was as well
1: that was a very special moment i remember vividly i hosted that evening and i i remember it very vividly and i remember the emotion that marvin Hagler had uh on that night ray leonard uh, of course has always remained uh a major celebrity in uh, in our uh, pop culture and has participated in so many different things over the years uh, and has also kind of surprised people with his candid uh, interviews and book and, and all the rest about some of the demons that he's gotten
3: past. Uh, candor is uh, precisely the word. Um He's been incredibly open. His, his memoir is searingly honest. Um, he holds his hands up to uh, domestic abuse. Um, he didn't treat Juanita as he ought to have, but also uh, he holds his hands up to the, or he acknowledged for the first time, uh, the sexual abuse to which he had been subjected when he was young. Um, and and that openness um, is actually incredible because you always had, you know, and I think this is the thing that kind of uh, increased Marvin's contemptuous attitude towards Ray. He, um, he used to spit out in his description of Ray, pretty boy. He didn't mean it in, as a compliment. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and Ray had this, you know, almost veneer. He was the all-American hero. It was too good to be true. He had his sweetheart, Juanita, their little boy, both of their photographs were sewn to his socks when he, when he won the Olympic medal, but actually it was a fairy tale. Uh, Ray's background was actually uh, quite hard himself, not quite uh, to the level of uh, Central Ward, but, but obviously those incidences of sexual abuse, you know, as, as they would do, hurt him immeasurably, and, and hit him at his core, and he struggled to deal with that all his life. And it perhaps contributed to his cocaine abuse, which again he uh, acknowledged candidly in his memoirs, and also his alcoholism, which which he he, stayed, he says he's still living with. In fact, the, the current pandemic, he found it pretty tough at the beginning because he didn't have his regular AA meetings uh, at that particular point. But of course, uh, as, as we have all done, um, we've adapted to, to life on Zoom and, uh, and he was able to resume those meetings over Zoom um, and that's helped him. But, you know, he, he had his own demons and he's had to deal with them. And I guess the victory is that they both came out of their particular circumstances and, uh, and that's maybe the ultimate victory in terms of uh, Marvin found his peace and Ray's got a certain peace. I think that he was shocked. Uh, when he heard that, uh, that Marvin had passed away so suddenly. And it's very poignant, particularly as we're um, around the time of the anniversary of, of the super fight. Um, but, you know, Ray, he lives in Pacific Palisades. He's lived there quite a long time. Uh, Neighbours with Steven Spielberg. Um, he's got a, a loving family, uh, second wife, Bernadette. Um, and uh, I think life has been pretty good to Ray in the end.
1: And those two men inexorably bound by the super fight that you detail in your book very well, uh, and um, and they will be intertwined forever historically, won't they?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, I I think it's a certain kind of leap, if you like, or push, uh, pushing the boundaries. Uh, I I suggested that uh, you know for for someone like myself uh, and others who might might be just slightly too young to. Uh, to remember Ali Fraser, that it was kind of our Ali Fraser, Hagler uh, um, leonard You know, of course, there were the other great fights of that era, the Four Kings, as they're referred to, with Tommy and Roberto. But I think central to it all, uh, the jewel in the crown had to be Hagler leonard because they both had beaten Roberto and Tommy. They had to fight one another. And I suppose in terms of um, the way that people are polarised, uh, in terms of the fight, you're either in the Hagler camp or, or you're in the, the Leonard camp. Uh, it, it, you know, the the uh, the comparison to Ali Fraser, I would suggest maybe stands in a certain respect. Um, and you're right that that they're they're inexorably linked. They'll forever be linked, and uh, it'll always be known as the super fight. And I think if uh, if fight fans are in a bar, and the subject of Hagler Leonard comes up, you can be sure that there will be one big argument.
1: That's for sure. Yeah. And you did a great job of uh, detailing not just the fight, but uh, all, and what went into that, but also uh, what led up to it with these two men. It's called The Super Fight. Uh, Brian, you did a great job with the book, and I'm happy that we had a chance to chat about it.
3: Oh, I'm really, I'm really appreciative. Of, and, I, and I just want to say this. Um, uh, it's it's very, very special to be on your show. I grew up in uh, Northern Ireland. I grew up in a time known by the euphemism the troubles it was a war it was a yeah. war going on and uh, and you know a lot of violence and uh, I was drawn to the violence of the ring I was fascinated by it um, and uh, a series which uh, uh, you know you'll inexorably be linked with certainly in my mind and minds of a lot of fight fans uh, Superbuds. yeah uh, you know you, you 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 conveyed a lot of big fights including this one uh, when you when we got to looking back on it and and of course Marvin and Tommy so look uh, I really appreciate being on the show uh, you uh, brought uh, some magical boxing bouts into my home in Northern Ireland and I'm, I'm really delighted that we were able to talk about this particular one I,
1: I- I appreciate that. The Superbowl show it was kind of my introduced me to the uh, European audience, and uh, it was a. I, I hear so many people talk about it, and it was a fun series because we got to show great fights. And uh, and uh, I have been privileged to visit Belfast on a number of occasions, and uh, I have it. it I've in, it really enjoyed talking to people there to try and get a feel for those troubled times that you, I, I can't say enjoyed. Uh, it's been insightful to me to uh, to talk to them and and kind of relive those times you're talking about, which I know were very difficult for everyone there. Uh, and and boxing has played a big role. Uh, Bear McGuigan was the perfect example with his story of uh, you know, marriage to, uh, you know, a Catholic, uh, girl. And, uh, you know, the, just the whole, uh, the whole, um, or the intermarriage that he had and all the, all the other things that go with that. So, uh, very boxing plays a big role in that. And you are a fine author, uh, who have done a number of books, including your red book on Joe Calzaghe, And this one, uh, which is coming out, uh, on, uh, the super fight will be uh, one to add to your collection. Thanks very much, Brian.
3: Thanks, Al. All the best.
1: All righty. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with uh, Brian Dugan. I was fascinated. I was so fascinated that it was the longest interview I think we've done in this whole series of Albert Einstein Unplugged. <laughs> I just enjoy. Uh, he, he, he's a, he's a, a good storyteller, both in print and I think uh, verbally as well. And I was having a good time talking to him about it. Now, there is a, uh, you know, a tinge of melancholy uh, in talking about that topic now because Marvin Hagler has, um, has passed uh, recently. And uh, so just talking about it kind of makes you a little bit sad. And I have to admit, Trip, when we were, I was going through it with Brian, I, I had a, a kind of a, a melancholy feeling.
0: And you've talked about it in the past, how you and Hagler became much closer than maybe you initially thought and how great he was to your family on the weekend you were inducted into the Hall of Fame. And it's funny how you can cover an athlete and then get to know him over a lot of years.
1: Yeah. And I, that is very good, very well put. And I am somebody who takes seriously the idea that, you know, you, you, I want to be, friendly with everyone in the sport of boxing, but you can't afford to be friends with everyone. Uh, you have to, I think, retain just a little bit of space because you're going to be commenting on them and all the rest. Though there were exceptions and Marvin Hagler became the exception to the rule. Uh, and uh, I have to say, you know, I, 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 I think of him as a friend, and uh, uh, you know I I mentioned George Foreman earlier. I have the same feeling for George, and uh, and he did. Marvin Hagler was was somebody identified with in the sport of boxing very much, and uh, of course he'll be uh, profoundly missed. And they are having a uh, special memorial for him on May 23rd in Brockton, Massachusetts. I am going to do my level-headed best to get to that event. They've asked me to speak. Uh, we may have a Showtime fight on May 22nd. So I'm hoping that that fight will be in the East Coast so I can hustle over and uh, be a part of that uh, memorial event uh, for uh, uh, Marvin Hagler. And we'll have more information on that as it as it plays out. But um, so uh, Miss Marvin for sure. Uh, now, uh, one of the ways, you, there are many ways you can see our show. One of the ways is on Tom Yankello's world-class Uh, channel on World Class Boxing channel on YouTube, where he runs our shows. And we talk about uh, Tom's uh, channel, which is an excellent one with great videos, uh, both informational and historical on sport of boxing. So go check out Tom's Tom's channel at World Class Boxing. Uh, Our next uh, time out, we're going to have Brandon Lee as our guest, who is a young welterweight who is lighting up the boxing world he's had a number of appearances on Showtime in Showbox where he has uh, electrified fans uh, his, his last fight out a third round knockout over Samuel Tia uh, who had never been stopped was a you know a highlight reel knockout and we're also going to have Gordon Hall the uh, executive producer of uh, Showbox on with us uh, a Showtime executive. And the reason I'm having show, uh, Gordon on is because Showbox has been the, the birthplace of champions in the past. And Brandon Lee looks like one of those. And I want to have him talk a little bit about how uh, a fighter kind of um, matriculates uh, on Showbox in that way. And uh, he'll inform us about that. So it should be a fun outing the next time. Tripp, thank you very much for your efforts as always enjoyed it and look forward to next week. Yeah, for sure. Thanks to uh, the Let's Do Something production folks for making this show possible. And we'll see you next time.